Why don't we pray? God, I really need your help this morning to communicate this difficult subject in a way that is your heart and is a way that creates movement in this place. God, not just a feeling of being overwhelmed, but God creates movement and response. So Holy Spirit, would you help me and would you help us, God, to really open up to this subject, but more than the subject, to open up to people and open up to your heart. God, we call this spotlight. Let your light shine, I pray, on people, because people are what really matter to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think whenever you're facing, uh, trying to talk about an issue like poverty, it's always a very difficult uh, place to know how to pitch it, you know, and and who will be listening, uh, and and where you are in your experience of God and of faith, um, and of this issue, and for some of you, you may be, um, you've been a Christ follower for a long time, uh, and this has been an important part of your understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower, but for some of you, you may be exploring what it means to follow Jesus, and uh, actually for some of you, you may think, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but I never even thought about poverty. You know, and so you, you're on a, there's a variety of different people here today, and so it's always difficult to know where to pitch it. But what we hope to do this morning is to kind of open the subject up to you, shine a light, we believe, on what God would say, and then give you some practical ways in which you can respond this morning. So what is poverty? What do we understand by the word poverty? The, the dictionary says that poverty is the state of being extremely poor. But I think that doesn't help me in terms of a definition, you know, poverty is being poor. But then when you read underneath that definition, the other line underneath that really helps. It says this, the state of being inferior in quality or insufficient in amount. amount. So poverty is being inferior in quality or insufficient in amount. So in other words, you could say poverty is about lack, isn't it? Poverty is a lack of something. If there's a lack of something that you ought to have or that other people have got, you could be said to be poor. So if that's the case... Poverty is much broader and wider than what we might think of. And even though today we're going to be speaking mostly on economic poverty to do with food and to do with some poverty-related issues, uh, poverty is much broader and wider than that. And I want to give you at least eight uh, different kinds of poverty that there are in the world today. So there is economic poverty, which is a lack of food, clothes and shelter. But there's also bodily poverty, which is a lack of physical health and access to health care. That's a real massive issue. And often those two are linked. Where there's economic poverty, there's often bodily poverty, where, where just the lack of access to good health care that you and I take for granted is there in people's lives. There's mental poverty, which is the lack of access to education or to knowledge. You know, the, you're on half term at the moment if you're at school, but you know, there are lots of people in the world who aren't on half term because they don't have any access to term at all. They don't have any access to education. That is a mental poverty. There is political poverty. You may think that we live in that in this nation, but actually we don't live in political poverty because on Thursday just gone, you went to vote, didn't you? You could have done. You could have done because we have the vote. Uh, and you know, if you wake up in a country where you think, Do you know what, I'd really like to have a say in how this country's run. I'd really like to have an influence. I don't want to just moan about it. I want to play the part. You can do that in this country because you can get out and vote. But lots of people in the world don't have that privilege. They have a lack of that ability. They are in political poverty. And then there is relational poverty. 
a lack of community support, of meaningful interactions with other people. And I'm going to be quoting quite a lot this morning from Mother Teresa, okay? Many of you will remember Mother Teresa. Um, and the interesting thing about Mother Teresa, I think one of the many interesting things about her life was actually at her death. She died on the same day as somebody else died. Remember who? Princess Diana. And because it was the same day, literally all of the media... Uh, influence with Mother Teresa was gone and it was all on Princess Diana because of the, of the clash of those two days. But actually that lady, born in Macedonia, Albanian descent, Catholic, gave up her whole life to feeding people who were economically and, and bodily and in lots of other ways really poor. But she said this, she says, in the Western world, our biggest challenge is not poverty of food, but it's poverty of relationships. She said loneliness is one of the biggest challenges in the Western world. So you can be relationally poor. You can also have moral poverty, which is a lack of values, absolutes, guiding principles in your life. And I want to suggest that I think you can also have spiritual poverty. You can have spiritual poverty where there's a lack of meaning and higher purpose. And if that's the case, I want to suggest that the poorest continent on the planet is Europe. Because in terms of spiritual poverty, Europe is poorer than any other other continent on the planet right now. But when it comes to poverty, of whatever definition, there are some common responses, okay? And you will have these responses this morning. The first one is just feeling overwhelmed. You know, when you hear statistics, I can't say that word, stats we'll call them this morning. When you hear stats, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. So when you hear the stat that there's nearly 7 billion people uh, on this planet and 824 million, just under a billion really, don't have enough food. That's about one in eight. Let's say one in eight. Don't have enough food today. So that's, I reckon, I reckon that's kind of all you guys. So Lee and you guys, there. so could you all stand up for a minute? Perhaps Ruth and Will as well. So this, these first three rows, could you just guys stand up, the two behind? I reckon that's about an eighth of what we've got here this morning. So if this group of people represented the world, okay, those guys don't have enough food today to eat, to survive. You do. That's quite chilling, isn't it? You have enough food. In fact, you have more than enough food, don't you? Because most of us throw away more food than we eat, often. These guys, if this represented it in the world, don't have enough food to get them through today. Thank you, guys. And that's just the facts. That's the reality. 60% of the world's hungry are women. Every few seconds, every three or four seconds, a child dies from hunger-related sickness. I can't tell you how many kids will die by the time I finish this talk through hunger-related sickness in the world. There are 35 million people who have HIV-AIDS on our planet. 88% of HIV-AIDS sufferers in the world are children who live in sub-Saharan Africa. 1.4 billion people on our planet live on less than a pound a day. Less than a pound a day. It's easy when you hear stats like that to feel overwhelmed, isn't it? One of the other responses, I think, is, is apathy. Well, it's just, you know, that's really sad, but it's not my problem. It's not our problem. And can I say, again, not wanting to be political at all, there's a growing feeling of that in our country, I think, at the moment, which is quite concerning to me. That sense that, you know, we've got so many problems of our own, let's let all these other problems in the developing world and in the really poor parts of the world, let them sort their own problems out because look at our problems. You know, our pension is nowhere near functioning like it used to be 10 or 20 years ago and we've got massive problems. So let's just focus on that and let them sort themselves out. I have to say, I don't think that's God's heart. That we get so insular and isolationist. We're on the planet, aren't we? With 7 billion other people. 
And it matters what happens on the other side of the world. And it matters what happens on the other side of our street as well. And apathy is a response. And then the third response is guilt. You know, we, we, with a talk like this this morning, you can go away feeling guilty about what you're going to eat lunchtime, you know, about what you might throw away that you don't eat lunchtime, about, about what you buy, about what you have, about where you go on holiday, about what car you drive. Can I just say, none of those responses are helpful at all. If you feel overwhelmed, apathetic or guilt, none of those responses are helpful. So I don't want you to have any of those responses. Because if you do have them, none of those responses will help anybody who's poor. It won't make any difference to anyone who's poor. It'll just mess you up. Okay? And I don't want to just mess you up in that way. I think God does want to mess us up, but in a good way. He wants to mess us up in such a way that we actually do something about it. We don't just feel messed up and do nothing about it. Does that make sense? It's very easy to listen to a talk like this and feel emotionally churned up or guilty or apathetic or even overwhelmed and do nothing about it once it finishes and the music finishes at the end. We walk out and we're no different than when we came in. But I, I want, and I believe that God wants us to stir something. God wants to stir something in us. And the thought that I think he wants to use to stir is this very simple thought. Stats have faces. Stats have faces. They're not just numbers, they're people. And there isn't a person on the planet that doesn't matter to God. So of the 7 billion people on the planet, nearly, every single one of them matters to God as much as you do or I do. Whatever level of poverty they are in right now, they matter to God because stats have faces. So what does God think about this? What does God feel about the poor? How does God respond? And some of you might say, oh, that's all very well and good. But actually, if God existed and if God was a God of love, how could he let all this thing happen anyway? That's a massive question, okay? And um, we're not going to talk about that right now. Uh, It's a really important question. But can I just say, declare something. I know that God has a massive heart for the poor. A massive heart for the poor. In fact, I was reading a book yesterday. I'm reading this amazing book written by a a, a professor of maths who's also a Christian theologian who debates regularly with the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and those kind of guys. And and it's it's a fascinating book. And I'm reading it at the moment, really really getting into it. And he makes a quote in there from an atheist who says, this guy, listen, and and he quotes an atheist who says this, I'm an atheist and I hate to admit it, but the church is the answer for the problems of Africa. And he basically declares all the reasons that sick people are getting healed, that poor people are getting fed, that lives are getting transformed, that hope is coming. He says, and it is all down to the church. He says, and I say that as an atheist. So if he says that as an atheist, those of you who are in this room this morning who are Christians, we should know God has a massive heart for the poor, doesn't he? In fact, in the Bible, there are over 2,000 verses around our attitude towards the poor. And I'm going to read a few of them to you, not 2,000, okay? Just a few of them for you this morning. Proverbs 19, verse 17. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. There's like a link to how we treat and relate to the poor to God. So when we treat and relate to the poor well... That honours God. God kind of is stirred by that. Reflects God as well in the way we do that. 1 John 3 verse 17 in the New Testament. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So if you say you love God but you don't reach out in a meaningful way to those who are poor, how can you say you love God and not do that? It's like it just doesn't stack up. 
I was brought up in, in church, and um, when, when you're brought up in church and you're a kid and a teenager, you suddenly start listening to things that, that are happening and listening to, to, to bits from the Bible. And there are a few bits in the Bible that really scared me as a young person. Anyone have that experience? And, and this passage of scripture that I want to read was one of those. And it's from Matthew chapter 25. And I'm not going to put it on the screen for a moment because I'm going to just read it to you. Uh, and then I'm going to make a few comments about it. It says this, when the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, when the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now I always used to think, that's a really crazy thing to say, why would you need to do that? Because like sheep and goats are so different from one another that it's obvious which are the same. But that's when you think about Western sheep and goats. When you think about Middle Eastern sheep and goats in the time of Jesus, they were very different. The goat, the sheep actually weren't the like round, fluffy, woolly things that we see and eat. Okay, They were actually, they looked more like goats. And often the herds would mix up together and you wouldn't be able to differentiate between them. So, so a shepherd had to go in and say, actually, those, they're sheep. They're, and they're, and that's, that's what Jesus was referring to. And he said, I'm going to do that with people. And I'm going to separate two kinds of people. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. But then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? I mean, we'd have recognized you. If you were hungry, we'd have recognized that. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So in other words, they're saying, listen, listen, no, no, you got this right, Jesus, because if this was you in poverty of an easy describes a whole variety of poverty there, doesn't he? In that passage of scripture. If that was you, we'd have seen you. We'd have recognized you. We know you. We sing about you. We know you. Jesus says, no, no. If you did it for one of these, you did it for me. He links himself and puts himself into the place of those who are poor. It's like when you do it for someone who's poor, you do it for me. Not just about me, but actually you almost do it to me. Then he says to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That used to scare me as a kid. It still does. And here's the key verse that I want to put up. In verse 40, the king will reply, Today I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's like whenever we reach out and help someone who is poor, whatever the poverty is, it's like we're doing that for Jesus and to Jesus. It's like it's a mysterious thing. That's almost he is present in the poor in an unbelievable way. 
One of my favorite writers on this whole subject, in fact on most subjects, is a guy called Tony Campolo. Some of you will have heard of him. He's an American Baptist minister, sociologist, Christian writer and author. He tells this story. I was walking down the street in Philadelphia and a bum came towards me. I mean a dirty, filthy guy. He was covered with soot from head to toe. You couldn't believe how messed up he was. He had this huge beard and there was rotted food stuck in the beard. As he approached me, he held out a cup of McDonald's coffee and said, Hey, mister, want some of my coffee? I looked at this dirty, filthy man and I said, Thanks, but that's okay. And I walked by him. The minute I passed him, I knew I was doing the wrong thing. So I turned around and I said, Excuse me, I would like some of your coffee. I took some of the coffee and sipped it and gave it back to him. And I said, You're being so generous. How come you're being generous today? And this bum looked at me and he said, because this coffee was especially delicious today. And I think that when God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. This is the Christian Baptist minister, sociologist, Christian author and writer. He said this, I didn't know how to handle that. So I said, well, can I give you anything? I thought that he would hit me for $5. He said, no. Then he said, actually, yeah, yeah, I've changed my mind. There is something you can give me. You can give me a hug. Campolo said, I was hoping for the five dollars. <laughs> but here's the thing. He says this, he put his arms around me and I put my arms around him. I in my suit and tie and him in his dirty, filthy clothes and we hugged each other on the street. I had this strange awareness that I wasn't hugging a bum, I was hugging Jesus. I found Jesus in that suffering man. And there's something mysterious, divine about when we connect with the poor of whatever description they are. That isn't just the other side of the world. We'll talk about that. That's right here in our own communities, in our own streets, even in our own workplaces. And those of us that have been to places of, of very uh, severe economic poverty, and many of you have, I have as well, me and Alison have, and Alison's got a massive heart for Africa and for the poor, and I've been to Africa many times, and going again in, in September, taking a team from here to South Africa, been to India and other parts of the world as well, and, and when you go to places, you, you, you cannot help being totally overwhelmed by Jesus that you meet in, in, in lives and in homes, uh, homes and in huts and in rooms and on rubbish dumps, and when you meet people and you say, do you know what, I'm meeting Jesus. Because you see, stats have faces. They really do. And, and actually, when, when we meet people and we really engage and enter into their world, we connect with Jesus at such a deep level. It's mind-blowing. When Alison and myself first went to Amlu, the community in Zambia, and she's going to come and talk about that in a moment, um, we went there together and... Uh, part of the experience was to go in to stay in someone's home overnight just one night that's all and we went in stayed in someone's home and it was the pastor Boyd and his wife and, and daughter at the time had another baby since and and theirs was a nice home compared to the rest of the community but it was one room and um in the one well, was there was a lounge area eating area then there was one bedroom and that was their bedroom and they gave us their bedroom and their bed I don't know where they slept we haven't got a clue but the interesting thing was that um, in the morning I was woken up by the African sunlight that comes about 5.30 in the morning, but also by the sound of them at work outside. And, and, and what the, um, the pastor's wife was doing was she was heating up water in some big tubs on, on an open fire so that we would have hot water to bathe in. And then the kind of bucket bath kind of thing that we had to do 
And it was an experience. And we spent 24, 48 hours together and uh, eating meals together and laughing together and praying together. And, but, you know, in the midst of all that, I thought, do you know what? Oh, this is Jesus in you. I didn't feel arrogant about it. I didn't feel, look at all I've got. There is some of that, but, but you connect with Jesus in an unbelievable way. And Jesus says, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. You see, stats have faces. How do we, this church, respond? If you're part of this church, you might not even know that that's what this church does and how we respond. And if you're not part of this church, perhaps you're not part of faith and you're, not, and you're checking it all out, you might think that, that this church comes on a Sunday and we get very excited about singing, which we do, but actually uh, our life and our expression of faith is far much more than that. So how does this church particularly respond to the question of poverty? Well, locally we respond in a variety of ways. We have a food bank here. Um, you may have heard about food banks on the news. They're, they're, they're a lot on the news at the moment. You know, nearly all those food banks in this country are run by churches. And people are saying all kinds of things about being political about it and whatever. But at the end of the day, if people haven't got food, let's feed them. It's quite simple in my book. Uh, and we have a distribution point for the food bank. And there is a central storehouse called the Black Country Food Bank, which was located in one of our buildings next door. But now they've moved to Briley Hill because they need more space. And we've blessed them on that. That's amazing. And in the last month alone, in April, we fed 166 people who needed food. And often that's because they get caught in the middle of benefits. And there's this big 8 to 12 week gap and there's just no food at all. And so we were able to help 166 people. And, and the Black Country Food Bank across the whole region, in three months between January and February, they fed 3,418 adults, 1,707 children, making a total of over 5,000 people. That's an increase of 33% on the same quarter last year, which is good and worrying at the same time, isn't it? That we've got that kind of issue in our culture of poverty, um, but it's good that we're doing something about it. That's one of the ways we respond. We also are very engaged in the soup run. How many of you have ever been on the soup run? Some of, quite a few of you, fantastic. So that happens in, in uh, Birmingham and a couple from this church, John and Helen, do an amazing job coordinating that. And if you want to be a part of that, just head out for one night. You know, uh, and it's not all night, it's in the evening, and just head into Birmingham and just help people, give them food, give them sandwiches and soup, and just be with them and engage with them. But then also, you may not be aware of this, that all of the time, the pastoral support that goes on from this church, not just staff, but volunteers, is amazing. So every week, because of the centre we've got, we'll get people walking. In fact, at the end of the first service, Barbara from the coffee shop came and told me a story about what happened this week, just this last week, which I didn't know about. There was a woman came in who had no food, who, who had literally six or seven of those kinds of poverty she had in her life. Literally, domestic violence, all kinds of issues. And we were able just to help her. That happens all of the time. Uh, you know, and it happens through all kinds of things. Sometimes it's families that just fall on tough times. Sometimes it's asylum seekers, it's unemployed, people with mental health issues, people with domestic violence issues, people with substance abuse issues, all kinds of things. If you think of poverty as being a broader than just no food, we're helping people all of the time through the ministry of this church. And then there are partners like Faze Trust who work with vulnerable young people. Some of the young people Faze work with are the most vulnerable in the whole borough. They're on the edge of being in care or they're in care. Very disadvantaged in their life. And we're able to help them and to try and encourage them and to try and step into their life for a little bit. That's just some of the things that we do locally. But what about globally? Many of you are involved globally through your own life. I know that Alison's first pay packet when she was an 18-year-old nurse, she started sponsoring a child and we've been doing that ever since. Many of you do that as well. And we have our own ways of responding globally. But as a church, we also respond globally as well. We give 
and we pray and because stats have faces, we actually go. What a great video that is, isn't it? I love it. I love watching it. I could watch it over and over. And after the first service, somebody came to me and said, do you know, Alison, it was like I was back there again. And there's something about that when you volunteer on one of these trips. It's like Africa, Zambia kind of gets inside you and you just feel yourself there and want to be back again. But some really happy memories there. Um, and some notes to the wise as well. That was the first time we'd ever taken Zambian kids swimming. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was an interesting experience. Okay. So just to give you a little bit of history about how we became involved in our work in Zambia, um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about um, how we got there. We've been, now been working in, in Zambia for 10 years. We were approached initially by Hands at Work, which is our partner organisation, and they asked us to go and try and get involved in a new project at that time um, to try and help the children that were orphaned as a result of the HIV-AIDS pandemic which essentially has left hundreds of thousands of children orphaned in sub-Saharan Africa by kind of wiping out a generation in reality. Many of the children live in child-headed households and some very elderly and unwell parents, are, um, grandparents, are left to raise very large families with very limited resources, very poor accommodation, no property and no help from the state. So it's in that context that we were asked to get involved. Um, now, we're not foolish enough to think that we can do that by ourselves. We can't just fly across to Africa and think that we've got all the solutions for a, a situation that, that's more complex than we can imagine. So we chose to partner with an organisation which is run by Africans for Africans and staffed by Africans. So we partner with them. We're not so arrogant as to think that we've got the answers. So for the first five years of our involvement, we were involved in two uh, very rural communities, Maposa and Kalende, great communities, going to hopefully go back and see them again this year. And we helped to build some property, we helped to plant some food, we helped to provide some healthcare advice and some dental care while we were there. We also became very involved in setting up the hub, which is kind of a central location in Zambia where um, it's like a retreat centre for kids so they can go to kids' camps and carers' camps where they can just go for a break from the poverty uh, that they experience every day. So that's what we did for the first five years. And then we were asked, now you're experienced, not that we felt terribly experienced, but now that you're experienced, would you come help us with a new project uh, in AMLU? And that's where we were introduced to AMLU, which is a far more of an urban environment um, located uh, just outside of Kitwe, uh, again in the Copper Belt, and it's the second largest city in Zambia. So what were we going to do? What's the hands model? Why do we work with hands at work specifically? Well, one of the reasons we're drawn to their model is because that they work with the poorest of the poor. They like to go where no one else does go or wants to go. Um, makes it a bit inaccessible sometimes, but it's a great opportunity just to go and to really support where the help's most needed. The vision is to provide three essential services. So that's food, education, and home visits or pastoral support. And uh, most of that is done via the community care workers. And you'll see a picture up there of some of the care workers from the community. These are just normal, ordinary guys in the community who look around and see the need and decide they're going to make a difference. Astonishing people, heroes of faith that sacrifice time every single day of their lives to go and support children who don't have any support. So that's some of the guys there. Um, the guy on the... Is it left? Can't do left and right, sorry. On the left is Pastor Boyd, who heads up the project. Um, 
He's a great guy, really uh, humble, great example of seeing Jesus in action. Um, So we partner with these guys as part of the HANDS model. And it's to help the community to become self-sustaining, not reliant on us. Our help is temporary. We go in for a while and support until they're empowered to be able to care for themselves. So, what do we do when we're actually there in Amalu? Well, every year we take at least one trip from Zion, usually around about 12 people, and the age range has been from 17 years to 70 years. So for any of you who are thinking you're excluded from my BDI to take you with me, you're not. Okay, you're you're all welcome to come. And when we're there, we do a variety of things. We run kids' camps, we do carers' retreats, health promotion activities, home visits, spiritual care... Uh, We've cleared ground. We've done some great gardening, which is a memorable occasion in many of our lives. Um, We've done lots of stuff to help in this community. But most of all, what we hope to do is exactly what you saw on that video. We bring a relief from the grinding poverty by just creating some opportunities for fun. You might think that's quite trivial. But you know what? In these kids and these carers' lives, it's really not. They love to run. They'll play silly games till the sun goes down just because fun is in such short supply. We run a feeding program that means that 50 of the most vulnerable children receive at least one meal a day. We provide some basic education and schooling, again run by volunteer teachers. Can you imagine that, teachers? You work for no pay every day of your lives. Can't see many of us volunteering for that. Um, They do home care visits and we also join those home care visits when we're out there. But most of all, what I want to do today is to tell you about one family. Because as Leon says, it's easy to talk about the children and the community, but actually it's the individuals, it's the people that matter. So today I want to tell you about a family that's very special to me. I can't guarantee I'll get through it without bawling, frankly, but you'll bear with me, won't you? Um, And I'm going to tell you about George, Kelvin and Samson. And we met them four years ago originally in Amalu, and they were amongst one of the most vulnerable families in the community. George was just a baby, uh, very small, very frail. Kelvin was quiet, serious, and clearly very unwell, even from the first time we met him. And Samson was the oldest, initially shy, but tendency to be a bit surly and even a bit aggressive at times. He could could clear off some of the other lads that were uh, getting in his way. And they lived with their grandparents and their mum. Although, in reality, mum was rarely present because she just couldn't cope with life. She just couldn't manage and had um, become addicted to alcohol and just taken herself away, really, because life was so overwhelming. Grandma and grandpa were both getting older. There's no jobs, no income, very poor health, extremely poor accommodation. Um, you know, there's no bathrooms or running water or any of that business. It's, it's just a hut. And uh, here was grandma and grandpa trying to cope with a very young family. The children joined the program, provided with a hot meal every day, a place to stay during the day when there was no one at home, and um, support for the family, particularly for grandma, who took the weight of the burden. It became apparent that George was very sickly, and the care workers in Amlu helped grandma to take him to the clinic, which is no small task in itself. And there he had some tests and was diagnosed with a lifelong condition, which would require medication forever. And uh, even taking medicines is quite a complex procedure when you've got no food to take them with and no clean water to get them down. So it's not as easy as it sounds in our context. So um, George managed to get this medication. That was all very positive. Mum spent less and less time at home, and the children were mostly cared for by the volunteers and grandma, who was finding it increasingly difficult to cope. 
Then two years ago, uh, Zion sent two teams out to Zambia. It was an exhausting year, but a great year. And the first team included um, some of us with some medical training. And it became very apparent to us while we were out there that while it was George that the care workers were concerned about, actually Kelvin was really, really sick. He was struggling to walk, he was unusually quiet, he was keen to be around the other children and could join in sometimes, but actually most of the time preferred just to sit on a member of the the team's lap and have a cuddle. And there were lots of shots there during that video, I wish I could have stopped it and just told you where he was, but there were lots of shots of him just cuddling up to people. And then later in the year, when we went for the second trip, it was a residential camp, it wasn't a healthcare camp, so we were all at the hub um, where the camp was going to take place. And Kelvin couldn't come as he'd been described as being difficult at night. Not quite sure what that meant still. Uh, George was still too young to come, but Samson decided that he would come. And uh, he was having the first holiday of his life, a chance to sleep in a real bed, to eat more than once a day, and have the freedom to play like any boy of nine should, really. Then news came on the second day of the camp that Kelvin had been taken suddenly ill. And before Grandma could get him to the clinic, he sadly died. This wasn't an unusual event for the community, but for us, it was a very unusual event. This was the first of our sponsored children that we'd lost. How should we respond? Who would tell Samson his brother had died, and how on earth were we going to do that? We were tremendously privileged to be asked to support the family through their loss. Care workers were responsible for organising the family support and helped to arrange the funeral. And we contributed to the sparse meal that they would share by just buying a big bag of, of maize, which was the only thing they asked for. I was asked to attend the funeral and speak on behalf of Kelvin in the absence of his mum and as a re- representative for Zion. I can't describe the experience to you as we waited to bur- bury Kelvin in a cemetery that stretched over her- the horizon. We waited in turn as one after one the other grieving families buried their children in the hot sun. We were told this was the children's cemetery and as we looked at the small crowded graves we realised all of them were recent. I stuttered a few words and we laid Kelvin to rest and a small group of mourners sat silent and tearless because it was such a familiar experience for them. It was just us left sobbing. The decision had been taken not to tell Samson immediately as he wasn't allowed to return home or attend the funeral. So he stayed at the children's camp. We talked with Pastor Boyd, the leader of the project, about how Samson might be informed and we agreed a strategy that would help him through the experience. Although I have to say it was quite an unusual strategy from Western terms and we were really doubtful about how it would be. But again, Pastor Boyd was right because he knew his community. And the following day, Samson and the other children from the community were told what had happened. We prayed with them, supported Samson through the early stages of his grief. The next day, it was the time for the children to return home. We had to quickly reset the camp in preparation for the arrival of the care workers who were then arriving for a two-day retreat. When the bus pulled up, we realised that one of the ladies who had arrived was Florence, Kelvin George and Samson's grandma. Not knowing what else to do, she decided to come on the retreat, leaving Samson and George in the care of other volunteers in the community. It's a very powerful experience, as over the next two days, we were just able to look after Florence a little bit. We prayed with her, we gave her some medicine because she wasn't very well, and just gave her the opportunity to rest. Just rest. 
and to have someone else look after her for a change. We were using a, a tool during one of the um, days of the retreat called the Tree of Life, and it's a tool that's designed especially for people in Africa who've had multiple losses to help them to try and come to terms with what's happened to them and also to equip them for the future, to see what resources they had. And it was one of the most humbling experiences of our lives as we looked at Florence's tree and realised that she'd lost both parents, all her aunts and uncles, all her siblings, three of her children and now a grandchild. We can't even imagine that, can we? Most of us. Part of the programme was to help identify their sources of support. And we looked in awe, really, as she listed our names as some of the people that had helped her through. It wasn't much help that we gave. It really wasn't much, but we were there. And we underestimate how important it is just to be there, just to know that people care. This is just one family's story. And we played a really small part directly. But we've been partners with them. And we can't underestimate how important our support and our contribution has been to that family. And continues to be. I've got a picture of Kelvin on my desk and people quite often come in and say, Who's that? is that your son? And I kind of want to say yes. Because <laughs> they're our children too. We take collective responsibility. We met Florence, Samson and George again in our next visit and they're still involved with the project. Samson is growing strong and progressing well, although I have to say a little grumpy about having to go to the community school now. Um, I think he snuck out every day to come join the project again last year because he didn't want to be away from us. George is developing well and he's continuing with his medicine, largely due to the volunteers all helping them with that process. Florence is delighted because we remember her name. And she's now supporting other people in the community and caring for other people who have had similar losses. Now, this isn't a happy ending of the type we would like because this isn't a fairy story. And I can't tell you that it's all good and everything's fine now. But what I do know is that through partnership, it's possible to make a difference and a significant difference. And allowing ourselves to open up and to be open to the possibility of letting Jesus break our heart for the poor of Africa is a great response. How can you support AMLU? Well, you all can. Maybe you could give financially or provide some resources for our next trip in August. There'll be some details coming out about how you can do that. Or maybe you could go. Perhaps you could take part in next year's trip. Every year people say, I'd love to do that. Well, do it. I'll take you. Do it. Maybe you could consider spending longer than that. Perhaps some of you have got six months or a year of your life that you could offer to work with Hands at Work in Africa. I know they'd be welcome. You'd be welcome. They'd love to hear from you and to have your support. And of course, we can always pray. It's a powerful prayer, isn't it? Written by a man from the DRC. I love that, that line towards the end, raise your voice, but move your feet. So how do we move our feet? What do we do? How do we respond? How do you respond? How do I respond individually? Let me just give you four ideas for you to think about as we draw to an end. Number one, live more simply. Live more simply. That's a response that we can make, isn't it? You know, we, we don't need all that we have, you know, and yet we keep getting more and more stuff. You know, someone from this church, I was speaking on these issues a few weeks ago, and someone came to, up to me afterwards and he said this, and it totally rocked me. 
And I've been thinking about it ever since. He said this, he says, and he wasn't doing it in any sense of arrogance or pride. It was just me and him. He didn't know that I would use it or, or say it from this stage. And he said, you know, one of the things that I've started doing is whenever I buy something for myself, I, I give the same amount of money away. That's challenging, isn't it? So whenever I buy anything, he says, for myself, think about how much was that and I give that money away. Live more simply. Secondly, think more openly. Do we even see people who are in poverty around us? You know, we're talking a lot about Africa today, which is so important. But do we see people who are in poverty around us? If poverty is more than just lack of food, if it's all these other things, do we even see that around us? You know, Mother Teresa said, we think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We must start in our own homes to remedy this kind of poverty. So I want to encourage you, you know, even in your workplace, even in your communities, even in your streets, even round about where you are, there are people who are in poverty. They have a lack of something. Do we even see it? Can we think more openly? Can we open our eyes to people around us? And thirdly, give more generously. Give more generously. You know, the money you already give to this church goes not to keep the staff in a job and keep the lights on. It goes beyond that, much more beyond that. Because what happens with the money that you give is that all this stuff you've heard about this morning and much more gets done. So we get to be able to stay open. We get to be able to reach out. We get to be able to partner with organizations like we've talked about uh, with you this morning. And you know, today what we're going to do at the end in a few moments is that we're going we're gonna to take another offering. We're going to give you another opportunity to give more generously. And the money that you give this morning, I know none of you prepared for this, is going to go, going to be put together with all the money we raised from the triathlon last Saturday. And we're going to give that either to the feeding program in AMLU or to the project that we're going to get involved with in South Africa later this year. So every bit of the money you give is going to go to kids. It's going to go to kids. It's going to go to the poorest of the poor. And if you're not prepared for, you know, if you haven't come prepared for that, you can write a check to Zion Christian Center. You can write an IOU if you want. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. But basically, if you want to respond that way, then you can do that this morning. But, you know, when we meet Jesus, there must be change in our lives. There must be change. We must become more generous when we meet Jesus. And you may be a generous person before you become a Christian. But when you meet Jesus, you need to become even more generous because that's what he does. And, you know, we're going to start a series in a few weeks' time called Game Changes. Look at encounters that Jesus had with people where, where he changed the game for them and where they then became a game changer in their own environment. And, you know, for some of you this morning, and we don't say this often, but we're going to say it more. For some of you, the game will change when you say, do you know what? I can do more than just these things. I actually can go. I actually can go for six months, 12 months, even for the rest of my life. And some of you will do that. Some of you will do that. And we want to get behind you and support you if you want to do that. But you know, for some of you, many of you say, well, you're not going to do that. But actually what you are going to do is that you are going to respond by the way in which you live your life. So for some of us, it isn't going to mean necessarily leaving our job and going overseas. Although for some of you, it will. For some of you, it's going to mean redefining your job. So if you're a tax collector, when you meet Jesus, you still may be a tax collector, but a different kind of tax collector. You may be a doctor, but when you meet Jesus, you'll become a different kind of doctor. That's the change. And in giving is far more than money. It's giving of our whole life. And the fourth thing I want to say is this. Love more painfully. What do I mean by that? How do we love more painfully? Again, Mother Teresa said, I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. And perhaps we don't love enough at times. And when it's painful, then actually that's when we really are reaching out and really expressing the love of Jesus. I'm going to ask the band if they can come back up. 
You know, um, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. And he didn't say that in, in, in an aggressive way. He just said, listen, if you really love me, you just will obey what I command. Not because you have to, but because you want to. So here's a thought for you. If we don't serve and help the poor, perhaps we don't love Jesus. Because that's what Jesus said. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And one of the things that Jesus commanded more than anything else was to reach out to the poor, wherever we find them. And you know, I want, I want to finish, Ben. You're going to watch and listen some, to something, then, and then we're going to take this offering as we finish. But um, th- this is a story I heard recently about a pastor of an inner city church. And I want to make it kind of home for us, if, 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 if just for a moment. And what this church were doing is that they were in an urban inner city area and they were running a, 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 a soup run for the homeless. And it was going so well and they were engaging so well with the homeless people that homeless people started coming into the service on a Sunday morning. And it was a middle to upper class church. And all of a sudden there were a lot of homeless people sat in church with them on a Sunday morning and they were starting to get very, very uncomfortable. And uh, one of the ladies went up to the pastor and, and she basically said this, um, Pastor, do these people have to be here with us? Can't we provide a special service just for them? pastor answered, well, I think everyone should have a chance to meet Jesus face to face. Oh, of course, she said, everybody should have a chance to meet Jesus face to face. I think they should have the same opportunity, opportunity as us. pastor looked at her and said, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about us. We should get the chance to meet Jesus face to face. And you meet Jesus face to face often in the faces of the poor. You know, in my um, research for this morning, coming across all these different quotes on poverty, there was one that really leapt out to me, which is a simple one. And it's actually not by a Mother Teresa type character. It's by an American actor called Jeff Bridges. And he said this, poverty is a complicated issue, but feeding a child isn't. And I thought, that's just so simple. Poverty is a complicated issue, but feeding a child isn't. And we want to give you an opportunity to feed some kids this morning. So we're going to take an offering and I really ask you to give generously. I know you do as a church, but I'm going to ask you to do that again. And all of the money you give now in this offering will go towards the feeding program and towards the project that we're going to support in South Africa. But you know, for some of us, it's going to be an easy thing to do to give. For some of you, it's not. But what's going to be the biggest thing for all of us to do is not just to give now, but to actually live it out, to go and to live it out in the, in the way that we've, we've been challenged to this morning. So we're going to sing. And uh, this song really that we sing often for ourselves, but I want us to sing it a little bit outward, a, li- a little bit this morning. So everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs compassion. You know, and everyone needs us to reach out. And um, what an amazing opportunity and privilege we've got. So we're going to take this offering and we're going to sing as we go and then we'll, we'll wrap up.